When you think of 1930s America, two things immediately come to mind, the Great Depression and gangsters. Now, gangsters was a term used for any criminal who operated with a partner or group in the 1920s and 30s. But there were two kinds of criminals made famous during this era. Big city mobsters who belonged to organized crime rings. They were the bootleggers who helped quench the American thirst for alcohol during the Prohibition years. They controlled liquor sales and expanded their operation into gambling and prostitution. And then there were the outlaws, the small town robbers, kidnappers, and murderers who traveled from state to state committing crimes, always on the run from the law. The economy of the Great Depression played its part in the rising crime rates of this era, but these gangsters were driven by more than economic doom and gloom. The ability to become instant celebrities, thanks to the rise of radio and the expanded newswire services that would quickly report these crimes and give criminals the notoriety they craved, often drove them. Society felt like it was falling apart through the Depression era, and well into the 1930s, there was a romanticized view of these gangsters as men and women who ignored the rules and became folk heroes. This drove many people into a life of crime, and they knew all they had to do was cause a little chaos, stir up some trouble, and their name would be on the front page of newspapers across America. One little-known outlaw of the 1930s was a man who claimed he became a killer because he fell in love with the wrong woman. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the crime tourist slayer, Lester Brocklehurst Jr., Al Capone, Lucky Luciano, John Dillinger, and Pretty Boy Floyd, along with Bonnie and Clyde. They're some of the most recognizable gangsters and outlaws of the 1920s and 30s. Then there's Lester and Bernice. If you've never heard of Lester Brocklehurst Jr. or Bernice Felton, you're not alone. Their stories buried pretty deep in the annals of 1930s crime. But it is quite a story, because Lester was a Bible-toting guy who met and fell in love with Bernice, and the pair set out on a six-week multi-state crime spree in 1937 that ended with Lester being dubbed the Crime Tourist Slayer. This was an unexpected path for Lester Brocklehurst Jr., who was born in Peoria, Illinois, on January 4, 1914. He was the first of three children born to Lester Brocklehurst Sr. and his wife, Edith. When Lester was six months old, the family moved to Galesburg, Illinois, where they remained until 1926. That year, Mr. Brocklehurst moved the family to Dallas, Texas, and opened an interior decorating business that thrived for a few years. Then came the Great Depression. The Brocklehurst struggled financially and returned to Galesburg in 1931. 
Now, the Brocklehurst were a Mormon family, and Lester Jr. described his upbringing as a loving environment. He embraced his parents' faith, and after graduation, went to work as a Sunday school teacher in his home church. In April 1934, 20-year-old Lester met 15-year-old Bernice Felton at a Tri-Cities church event. Lester took part in a public speaking contest, reciting the Beatitudes and the Bible, and Bernice was featured in a play. Lester said that when he met Bernice that evening, he took an immediate liking to her because she seemed so sensible, pleasant, and pretty with her dark hair, dark eyes, and wire rim glasses. Now, despite their age difference, within a few months, Lester felt that he was totally in love with Bernice, who lived in Rockford, a couple hours drive northeast of Galesburg. The two got to know each other through letters. Lester sent Bernice pictures of him. He wasn't known as a ladies' man, pretty average-looking guy. But Bernice liked him. She felt drawn to him. And her parents liked Lester, too. Eventually, Lester felt it was time to take Bernice on a date. He was working at his father's interior decorating business, so he asked for a little cash so he could visit Bernice in Rockford. His father initially agreed, but when Lester asked to have a regular allowance so he could make more trips to see Bernice, his parents were honest with him, telling him they weren't too keen on the age difference between the two, and they weren't sure Bernice was the right girl for him. After repeated attempts by Lester Jr. to get money from his father, Lester Sr. grew tired of it, became angry, and told his son to leave his house. With no place to go, young Lester hitchhiked to Chicago where his reputation of always being the good guy and doing the right thing ended. He had taken a gun when he left his father's home, so he used it to hold up a cigar and candy store. He was captured, convicted of armed robbery, and sentenced to three years in prison. The one positive in Lester's life were the letters Bernice wrote him every week. He said being madly in love with her made him feel that life was bearable because he would have someone to go home to one day. When paroled in the fall of 1936, Lester went to live with Bernice's family. Her parents still liked him, or at the very least tolerated him, and their daughter was away at a girls' school. So they rented out a room to Lester after he got a job at a department store. And working consistently just didn't seem like Lester's thing. He was let go from the store the following year and tried again. Went to work at a five and dime store. But weeks later, Lester quits. He left the Felton home, stole a revolver, and hitchhiked to Bernice's school, where he told her he wanted her to run away with him. She quickly agreed, saying she was up for an adventure because she loved him and would go anywhere with him. So 23-year-old Lester and 18-year-old Bernice made an agreement that she would pack up her things at school while Lester headed out to steal a car. It was March 31st, 1937, the first day of what would be a six-week-long crime spree 
across 18 states. That was the day 47-year-old John Feander disappeared. The Rockford man was reported missing along with his car. His family didn't know that John had seen a young man hitchhiking on the outskirts of town and stopped to give him a ride. This young man, Lester Brocklehurst, pulled out his revolver. He told John he was taking his car, and when John tried to fight back, he was shot in the head. Lester pushed John's body out of the car and fled. He drove to Bernice's school to pick her up, and they left town. Lester would later say he felt no guilt in that moment because he was in love, and all he cared about was being with Bernice, who he had just learned was pregnant. The couple pulled their money, all in $82, and headed for Salt Lake City. Their plan was to drive to the Mother Temple of the Mormons to get married, but they ran out of money just outside of Salt Lake. Lester held up a gas station and walked out with $250. The pair drove to a small town in Utah where they visited friends who helped them find a room to rent. Now, before marrying Bernice, the couple agreed Lester needed to get a job so they would have steady income. They rented a room and lived together for a couple of weeks until Lester decided they needed to go to Dallas, where he might have a better shot at landing a job. He had connections and a network of friends in the city, so the couple stayed with Brocklehurst's family friends, who would later say Lester's behavior was odd. He refused to drive his car if they went out to eat together and would duck down in the back seat if they passed a police car. This made these family friends nervous, so they asked Lester and his friend to find a new place to stay. Lester and Bernice moved on and continued their cycle of running out of money and holding up gas stations or grocery stores for cash. On April 28, 1937, the couple drove to Fort Worth, Texas, where they held up a grocery store. But the store only had a few pennies in the cash register, so the frustrated couple, desperate for money, ran into a nearby bar. The owner, Jack Griffith, tried to protect himself and his patrons by fighting back when Lester pulled his revolver and demanded cash. The moment Jack made a move towards Lester, Lester claimed he moved back, but Bernice shouted that he had to kill this guy. So he fired, shot Jack Griffith, who would die, bleed out on the floor of his bar. Now Lester would later say that as he and Bernice ran back to the car and fled Fort Worth, he felt something he hadn't felt in a long time. Fear. He realized every cop in the state was going to be looking for him and his partner in crime. The couple drove a few hours before pulling over and abandoning their car on a dirt road. Lester threw the couple's suitcases into a ditch so they could travel light. And they began walking for hours. Eventually, they felt comfortable enough to head back to the main road to hitchhike again. They never had trouble thumbing down a ride because they looked like a nice, clean-cut, all-American couple. 
which is why on May 6, 1937, when Victor Gates saw them hitchhiking, he stopped and offered them a ride. Gates was a wealthy landowner from Little Rock, Arkansas. When Lester asked if he could take them all the way to Little Rock, Mr. Gates agreed, saying he'd be happy to have company on the drive. When they were close to Little Rock, Lester felt it was time to rob Mr. Gates. He asked Gates to pull over for a bathroom break. As soon as the car was in park, Lester pulled out his gun and told Bernice to get out of the car so her dress wouldn't get messed up. When Mr. Gates tried to move, escape the car, Lester shot and killed him. Lester told Bernice to grab Mr. Gates' money and watch from his pockets, and the two pulled his lifeless body towards a ditch and left him there. Bernice got into the driver's seat, Lester jumped in the passenger seat, and they got back on the road. Within days, the names Lester Brocklehurst and Bernice Felton gained national attention in newspapers. Lester was accused of three murders, and both of them accused of multiple robberies. Officials warned the public to be aware of this couple and stay away from them, saying if you spotted them, you should call police and stay safe. Clearly, Lester and Bernice were out of control. For weeks, they continued their crime tour of the country, robbing and holding up gas stations, one seeming to encourage the other along the way. But it was Lester who had pulled the trigger and murdered three men over the course of their crime spree. And a fourth man came close to death when the couple drove through Nashville, Tennessee. There, they attempted to rob a cleaning plant. A worker tried to fight Lester off, and an enraged Lester tried to shoot this man. But his gun jammed. On May 9th, an alert was issued to police in Arkansas, Tennessee, Missouri, and Illinois, warning them to watch out for a male driver and his female companion suspected of killing at least two men. At the time of the alert, the last sighting of the couple was in a town in Arkansas where Lester pawned a watch belonging to Victor Gates. He used the money to pay the fee on a toll bridge, with the operator saying the couple seemed very nervous and matched the descriptions of the couple who had been in the newspapers lately. As Lester and Bernice continued to drive from state to state, they would commit 40 armed robberies. When they drove Victor Gates' stolen car into Brewster, New York on May 13th, the vehicle caught the attention of state trooper Joseph Hunt. Initially, he chased the couple down to pull them over because the car was missing a license plate. He had no idea they were driving a stolen vehicle. When Officer Hunt pulled the car over and walked up to the driver's side window, he saw a revolver in the front seat. When he glanced into the back seat, he noticed what appeared to be blood. The couple were detained and held at a New York State Police barracks at Fishkill. Now, when Lester was detained, he fainted. When Lester was questioned at the police barracks about his involvement in multiple murders and armed robberies, a very nervous Lester 
fainted again. Hours later, when he was again questioned about these crimes, Lester confessed to it all. And he tried to take the blame for all the crimes, saying Bernice was innocent. But Bernice told police she was present for the murders of Victor Gates and Jack Griffith and vowed she loved Lester and would never let him take the rap for their crimes. The couple claimed they were married and she pled for mercy, asked that she be spared death because she was pregnant with Lester's child. As Lester and Bernice were vowing their love and devotion for one another, officials from multiple states traveled to New York to debate which jurisdiction would hold Lester and Bernice for indictment and prosecution. There were also questions as to whether Lester had murdered another man before the couple began their cross-country crime tour. Rockford, Illinois Sheriff Paul Johnson made the trip to New York to question Lester about the murder of Herman Lorson. Mr. Lorson was a gas station attendant who had been murdered on February 12th in a small town called Rockton. Sheriff Johnson told authorities in New York that the same type of gun Brocklehurst used in two other murders was used to kill Mr. Lorson. But unlike the other three murders he had confessed to when he was arrested, Lester maintained he did not kill Mr. Lorson. Within days of the capture of Lester and Bernice in New York, then-Governor Herbert Lehman determined they should extradite the couple to Arkansas, where Prosecutor George Hardy had the strongest case against them. Several witnesses had seen the couple in the car with Victor Gates around the time of his murder, and one had even written down Gates' license plate because he believed the couple inside the car to be the couple the papers had been writing about, the lovers on a crime spree. Representatives from several states agreed to the plan because they knew the case was so strong in Arkansas that Lester would be convicted and sentenced to death. Prosecutor Hardy promised the public he would pursue the death penalty for Lester and his partner in crime, Bernice. Now that promise from the prosecutor would be the beginning of a gradual breakdown of the romance between Bernice Felton and Lester Brocklehurst. Now Lester and Bernice's parents traveled to New York to support their children and offer assistance with their defense. When Abraham Felton heard Bernice was pregnant and would be charged as an accessory to murder, he talked to the press, told them Lester had taken advantage of his daughter, promised her marriage, but all she got was a passenger seat in his tourist crime spree across the country. And now she was going to be an unwed mother, give birth behind bars, and could die because she fell in love with a criminal. The couple continued to proclaim their love for each other when they were extradited to Lone Oak, Arkansas in late May 1937. Both were held under suicide watch because they had made comments about taking their own life if anything happened to the other, vowed they could not live without each other. They were held in separate cells, but prison guards allowed them supervised visits to share meals behind bars. As attorneys worked to mount a defense for the couple, they asked for a 30-day continuance. 
The state had set a trial date for Lester on June 14th, but the defense said they needed time to review the evidence against their client. And there were concerns about Lester's mental health. When Lester heard there were rumors published in papers that he had spent time in a mental institution, he asked his attorney to set the record straight, saying he was, quote, never in a place like that and never expected to be. But his defense pushed for an insanity plea to save Lester's life. The judge agreed to a trial delay of 10 days to give the state and defense time to evaluate Lester. By June 18th, both sides had experts examine Lester Brocklehurst Jr., who was declared sane. Lester's trial began June 24th, 1937. Initially, Bernice's defense had helped her avoid being called as a witness for the state. She didn't want to testify against the man she loved. But the night before Lester's trial, the couple argued when they were sharing a meal in Lester's cell. Guards overheard Lester blame Bernice for making him kill and encouraging him to rob people. Their strong bond and agreement to never testify against each other, it ended that night. The next morning, the state called Bernice to the stand. She testified against her former lover and confessed she was present when Victor Gates and Jack Griffith were killed, but said she played no part in the murders and didn't entice or encourage Lester to hurt anyone. She acknowledged that after Lester forced her to remove Mr. Gates' watch and wallet from his pockets, she helped Lester dispose of Gates' body when they dumped his remains in a ditch. And she was the one driving the stolen car when they fled the scene of Gates' murder. Now, the prosecution countered Brocklehurst's attorney's claim that Lester was insane. The State Hospital for Nervous Diseases examined Lester, and an affidavit presented in court showed the defendant was sane. Lester's trial lasted just a few hours, By early afternoon, the jury deliberated 40 minutes and returned a guilty verdict. Lester Brocklehurst was sentenced to death by electrocution. When the verdict was read aloud in courts, a very nervous Lester fainted, and so did his father, who was in the courts alongside Lester's mom when their son's fate was sealed. The following day, Bernice Felton stood trial. An antagonistic Lester Brocklehurst took the stand, testifying against Bernice, whose defense claimed was another victim of Lester's crimes. Her defense insisted Bernice never assisted Lester in a robbery and only stayed with him on his frantic crime tour because she was scared and wasn't sure what to do. They claimed Bernice had been forced to leave town with Lester when he learned she was pregnant, and his crimes horrified her. When Lester took the stand, he told a different story, testifying that he killed and robbed to furnish Bernice with money and clothes she demanded he provide for her as the mother of his child. When asked if he ever intended to marry Bernice, Lester said their relationship was over because he now believed another man could be the father of her unborn child. The jury deliberated Bernice's fate for one hour and 20 minutes 
before agreeing to acquit her. The crowd that had gathered around the courthouse in Lone Oak was not happy. The public sentiment was that Bernice had played a role in these crimes and should pay for it, just like Lester. When the judge ordered Bernice released from jail, she and her father were under police protection for a few days. They were taken to a tourist camp to hide out because authorities were afraid angry locals would attack Bernice if they saw her. Considering the public outcry over her acquittal, Bernice may have felt relief on June 28th when she was arrested and transported to federal custody in Little Rock. Bernice had confessed to driving Victor Gates' car out of Arkansas after Lester shot and killed him, which meant she was facing grand larceny charges for transporting a stolen car across state lines. The feds delayed her court hearing until after the birth of her daughter in December 1937. Now that same month, Lester Brocklehurst's defense appealed his death sentence, but the Arkansas Supreme Court upheld the ruling. His execution date was set for March 18, 1938, at the Tucker Unit in Jefferson County, Arkansas. They led Lester to the electric chair just before sunrise. Before they strapped him into the chair, the prison warden asked Lester if he had any final words. He delivered a 12-minute rambling statement about Bernice and how he had been a victim of the actions of others. He said loving Bernice ruined him, and newspapers tried and convicted him in Arkansas. He claimed his desire to please Bernice led to the murder of Victor Gates, saying, quote, Gates never would have been harmed had it not been for her. She told me to kill him, and I did it. She was the motivating cause in my wrongdoings. Lester then asked if any of the 15 witnesses permitted to view his execution were related to Gates. When no one answered, he asked the warden that his sincere and deepest regrets and sympathy be conveyed to the Gates family. He then went back to talking about Bernice, saying when he met her, his parents were right to attempt to stop him from seeing her because she had led him astray. His final words were, the only thing that brought me down to this was a slight love affair with a girl. I don't want her to get the chair, but she is just as guilty as I. Lester Brocklehurst Jr. was then strapped into the Tucker Unit electric chair. At 6.37 a.m., his death sentence was carried out. Bernice Felton did serve time for the crime she confessed to committing during the six-week crime tour. In May 1939, she pleaded guilty to transporting Victor Gates' stolen car across state lines. She avoided another trial in exchange for serving five years in the federal women's prison in Alderson, West Virginia. It's hard to trace her steps after she left prison. While inside, the prison record originally listed Bernice as Bernice Ralph, but the record later showed her name was Bernice Felton. Perhaps she didn't want people to know her real name, or maybe it was a simple error. After her release, she returned to Illinois and married at least twice before her death in 2007. 
Lester and Bernice would be the poster couple for a public campaign warning drivers of the dangers of picking up hitchhikers. In 1939, a syndicated crime columnist published an expose on hitchhiking criminals who had robbed and murdered drivers across America. He featured stories of kind-hearted people who had pulled over when they saw a nice-looking person holding out a thumb for a ride. The expose featured photos of clean-cut, all-American individuals and couples who had hitchhiked, robbed, and in some cases, murdered drivers who gave them a ride. Lester Brocklehurst Jr. and Bernice Felton were the featured couple because many sympathetic drivers were falling victim to crime tourists like them. So much so that in 1939, more than half of U.S. states were enforcing laws designed to make hitchhiking a crime. That same year, the president of AAA, the American Automobile Association, issued a warning to drivers saying the people they encountered on the road, thumbing a ride, may look like Lester, a nice Sunday school teacher from Illinois, but you just never know. They could be the kind of person who has exchanged the Bible they carried in their coat for a revolver. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. You can view photos for this episode along with sources in the show notes at southernmysteries.com. While you're there, you can sign up to hear more Southern Mysteries when you join me on Patreon. Fans of the show who join me there get to hear Southern Mystery Shorts, which is bonus content each month as a thanks for supporting this little independent podcast. You can learn more on our website or head straight to patreon.com slash southernmysteries to join today and catch up on 20 episodes that are exclusively for my patrons who make this show possible. Thanks for your support, and thanks as always for listening to Southern Mysteries. Oh, oh, oh.